Hey, welcome to More Christ. Today I'm joined by Andrew Youssef. Andrew was born in Egypt where he grew up. Later he moved to Canada and attended McMaster University. He received his bachelor's degree in religious studies. He then continued his education at Orthodox School of Theology in Trinity College in Toronto in Canada where he received his master's. Andrew is currently working on his PhD at Trinity College focusing on the Christology of Severus of Antioch, a saint of the Oriental Orthodox Church and Maximus the Confessor, a saint of the Eastern Orthodox Church. In addition to his kind of theological education, then Andrew's finished in training to become a hospital chaplain and spiritual care provider. So just to begin, Andrew, um, what first prompted your interest in theology, I suppose Christology and some of the, those other central concerns that we now see in your work then? Well, um, well, first, thank you for the lovely introduction. And uh, yeah, theology for me started uh, from a very young age. I grew up in a very uh, religiously committed family um, that did attend seminary as a, as a lay couple. My parents, uh, they weren't particularly uh, planning on pursuing any form of ordination or anything, but they wanted to increase in knowledge. And at the time, children weren't allowed. And I, I was a child. I was in like elementary school. Um, but I, I managed to get the Metropolitan's uh, permission to actually attend with them and, and audit. And I, I really enjoyed the material that I started like writing notes from time to time. And when they came out, they had the exam questions with them to, to review with one another. Uh, I'd actually go through it and, and occasionally find the uh, find the answers and know the answers and sometimes know more answers than my parents were actually getting tested. Not a lot, they were pretty good. <laughs> so um, yeah, that I think is where it all uh, began. Um, theologically, in terms of um, pursuing academic studies, that has been on my mind since I was in, in high school, uh, particularly the latter half of high school, grade 11 and 12, where I got closer to the church and uh, closer to uh, having monastic intentions and so on and wanted to grow more in my knowledge. Um, so I decided I want to do something like religious studies or theological studies or, or something of that nature. Um, Christology in particular began toward the end of my undergrad. I felt like theology, um, for theology to be really substantial, it needs to have a dimension of reconciliation to it or reconciliatory approach, uh, where we look at where there is a need for reconciliation and we work on it. And for me, the thing that caught my attention the most was the Christological controversies that did leave the church divided be from uh, the Assyrian Church of the East Schism or the Oriental Orthodox versus uh, Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic uh, division, etc. And I felt like the place where I could offer uh, something the most would be the Eastern Oriental uh, Schism. And that's what I pursued. I, I kind of wrote every paper went through every course in my Master of Theological Studies at Trinity College uh, with that end goal in mind uh, of desiring to eventually do a PhD that tries to reconcile or kind of actually, you know, demythify a lot of the myths that a lot of popular culture has in mind about what Oriental Orthodox Christians believe, what Eastern Orthodox Christians believe, um, there are a lot of uh, sweeping statements uh, that are made by both sides that I often hear, uh, including, including stuff that both sides worked on. For example, the agreed statements in the 1980s, where I felt like they are making way too general statements that if they were put to the test by comparing them with all the um, specific church fathers from either side, these sweeping statements wouldn't exactly hold water. There is a need for more nuance. Uh, there's a need for appreciating the diversity of both sides because each side has its own um, kind of 
inner diversity of how formulas are used and how theology is expounded. So I think that's that's where I am now, trying to look for ways to reconcile. And if there is no way to reconcile, then at least there is a way for us to really understand what each side is saying rather than uh, make assumptions or uh, just create ad hominems right, left and center. Mm, brilliant. Thanks, Andrew. I think that's the most important work and I appreciate that. And um, I think that openness comes across in your written work too, which I look forward to speaking about. So uh, next, if I may, then I just want to ask you a little bit about some influences then. So uh, you mentioned your parents there. We could touch upon them again if you want, or if you want to choose someone else. I just want to ask about who has been especially inspirational or influential in your life, I suppose. Well, I would, I would start by people I have um, interacted with at Trinity College. So Trinity College has a focus on Eastern Christian studies that's available within there that's commonly known as um, the Orthodox School of Theology, which is the, the part of the faculty of Trinity that focuses on providing Eastern Christian studies. And that includes uh, lots of renowned individuals that I have dealt with who are pretty much known in the entirety of the Western world. These include uh, Father Jeffrey Reddy, who's um, a scholar of liturgics and uh, liturgical theology. Um, I've also interacted with Dr. Schneider, uh, Professor Richard Schneider taught me Old Testament and iconology, which was very important because eventually I started uh, taking on uh, training in iconography myself. Um, I've met with uh, and have been taught a lot by Dr. Uh, Ladisseur. Uh, I've uh, learned with him a lot about modern spirituality, modern uh, theology, um, which he wrote a book about that, that is Modern Orthodox Theology. Uh, of course, I have also been taught by uh, Dr. Maria Futini Capsalis, who uh, taught me early church fathers. And first and foremost is, of course, Dr. Uh, uh, sorry, Dr. Daniel Opperwall, uh, who was uh, the thesis supervisor for my master's degree. So I've had quite the multifaceted uh, approach in my master's. I had a lot of inspirational figures that have um, kind of put me on the right track, make sure that I don't become too, um, I guess, too uh, open or too closed off. It's put me on a, on a bit of a balanced uh, pathway. Um, that's in terms of academic studies in my master's level. On the PhD level, I've been um, positively influenced by uh, Dr. Christopher Britton, who's the dean of my college, Trinity College, and also my supervisor together with Dr. Mark Elliott. Um, and, um, other uh, members of the committee like Dr. Uh, Jesse Billet. So I've had quite the, the broad spectrum of Anglican, Catholic, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox from my own personal readings. Um, and then there's of course the stuff outside of that. I had uh, I'd been very much part of my, for my formation uh, comes from my interest in monasticism and spending lots of times in the monastery. And I've been taught by the writings and the lives of many monks around me that I've, that I've interacted with growing up, um, including someone like Father Matthew the Poor, whom I learned plenty from, uh, from his spiritual writings, especially Orthodox Prayer Life. Uh, that was kind of a, reading that book at the monastery in 20 days while it's that large, uh, is quite the, uh, the turning point of my life and my approach. And by the way, here's here's uh, something that audience should know, especially those who have read Orthodox Prayer Life. So English Orthodox Prayer Life is this big. <laughs> Arabic Orthodox Prayer Life is this big. Quite <laughs> a larger text, uh, an entire part of the Arabic has not been translated to English. 
So when I mention Orthodox prayer life and I, I make this uh, kind of size with my hands, I'm really speaking about the Arabic version, <laughs> not the English version. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Andrew. And um, I want to ask you a little bit more, actually, about your identity as a Copt, which I think people should know more about in the the Catholic Church. Uh, So Egypt, I think, has obviously been integral to the Christian story right throughout the scriptures and then on through the centuries since Christ Christ ascended. This kind of rich heritage with people like St. Anthony and rich traditions and intertwined with holy sites. I think also the desert mothers and fathers have even been rediscovered more recently by people like non-Egyptians. Can you share maybe a little bit about what being a cop means to you and what it this kind of unique tradition has to offer the world then? Absolutely. Well, I mean, growing up in the, in the Coptic Orthodox Church has been a, it's been quite the journey. Uh, I'm not going to claim that it's all uh, pink and flowery. Uh, It's not all good. It's not all bad. I mean, growing up in Egypt, where um, you always know that some of the churches you were going to attend Christmas or Easter in had threats of bombing or or shooting or whatever. That's not exactly very pretty uh, growing up when you're uh, when you're a young man. Um, That's not also to say that this is all of Egypt or this is how Egypt always is. This is stuff that happens from time to time. so yeah, I mean, growing up in the, in the modern Coptic Orthodox churches is, is, uh, comes with its challenges if you are in Egypt, and that's where I grew up. I, I lived for 14 years in Egypt, so that's been a, a big part of my growth. Um, in terms of the actual heritage of the Coptic church, I think the best part about growing up in, in the Coptic Orthodox church was, um, like, aside from all the external factors that come from being in Egypt, I think the best parts are, as you said, Growing up in a church, knowing that it's the Church of Martyrs, uh, the Church of Monasticism, monasticism in, in Christianity began in Egypt. And of course, um, the first three councils, at least, um, are heavily influenced by the work of Egyptians and the Church of Alexandria in particular. We provided the world with allegorical interpretation, which everybody's coming back to discover right now and realizing that, oh, that's a great idea. It's a lot better than you know, struggling with apologetics all the time. <laughs> Yeah. So, which is which is not to to downplay the historical part of the Bible, but it's just it's that realization that you know allegorical interpretation isn't just for monastics who are reading and writing the Philokalia and and you know trying to find something that nurtures their spirituality. In fact, it can be for everybody. Alexandrians lived that way, and the I think they have done a great job maintaining their faith, all things considered, with the kind of persecution they have endured uh, since as early as the 5th century under the Byzantine Empire, then the Persian Empire, then eventually uh, after the Arab conquest. So you, you look at it and you feel blessed. I think the greatest part, so everything I just mentioned can, in one way or another, uh, apply to varying degrees to all Oriental Orthodox churches. Uh, what I think is phenomenal about being Coptic Orthodox in particular out of all the Oriental churches is being part of a church that was largely persecuted rather than persecuting. Uh, so statistically, the Coptic church is probably the church with, with the least amount of bloodshed on its hands, historically speaking. Uh, our blood was shed, but we never shed blood. Uh, or if we did, it was really... Uh, very scarce things, uh, scarce events here and there. 
And the other thing is that we are not an imperial church. And this is not anti-imperialism. I mean, ultimately, uh, Oriental Orthodox Christians from Egypt tend to say, well, the Byzantine Empire is too imperial. But in reality, Oriental Orthodoxy is too imperial too. Uh, the first empire to ever embrace Christianity as a state religion is not the Byzantine Empire. It's actually the Armenian Empire at the time, or the Armenian Kingdom. And the longest standing uh, Orthodox Christian empire is not the Byzantine Empire. It's, in fact, the Ethiopian uh, Christian empire. So Oriental Orthodoxy can tolerate imperialism, no problem, but there is beauty about being part of a church that did not have imperial power backing it up. It was entirely carried on the shoulders of her church fathers and her theology and her spirituality uh, throughout the centuries. And I think that's that speaks to the power of the grace of God that transcends all kind of uh, all kinds of imperial backing in a way. Mm, excellent. Thanks for that, Andrew. And uh, next, if we may, I'd love to look at your brilliant book, uh, Oriental Orthodoxy Unveiled. We touch upon not just the Coptic Church, but some of those other churches that you mentioned, So, which is really one church, I think, which you can probably tell us more about. So first then, um, can you tell us a little bit about what Oriental Orthodoxy is, for those who don't know, and what's distinct about this tradition in the broader sense that you're referring to? Sure. Um, Oriental Orthodoxy, I would say, is a term that's largely modern. Uh, the, the whole idea of calling it Oriental is just a way of trying to distinguish between the six churches, uh, which we call Oriental Orthodox, as opposed to the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Byzantine uh, Orthodox Church or the Slavonic Orthodox Church, etc. Um, and it's it's not a very uh, wise distinction because while it works in English, it doesn't work in a lot of other languages where there's only one word for the concept of Eastern or Oriental. Uh, but generally for, for the sake of being brief here, Oriental Orthodoxy refers to the faith of the six churches uh, known as the Coptic, uh, Syriac, Ethiopian, Eritrean, uh, Armenian, and Malankara slash Indian Orthodox churches. Um, and together, these six churches make up what we call the Oriental Orthodox Communion or the Oriental Orthodox Churches. The reason we are, uh, it's hard to say whether it's the Oriental Orthodox Church or the Oriental Orthodox Churches uh, is largely because it depends on what you mean by church. Uh, if you mean by church, that church, well, then it's one church, of course, because we all believe the same things. Um, but if you are referring to this in terms of uh, the ritual aspects of the church, then their church is because the Coptic church has a rite that's quite distinct from the Tawahedo rite practiced in the Ethiopian and Eritrean church, which in turn is different from the Armenian. And then the Syriac is also a different rite. The Syriac rite is practiced in both the Syriac Orthodox church, the Jacobite Orthodox church in India and the Malankara Orthodox church. So the idea of whether it's one church or, or, or six churches largely depends on what aspect of church uh, are you looking at. Uh, what we all have in common is, is the faith of the apostles. Uh, we're traditional churches, Trinitarian churches. Um, and what distinguishes us from the rest of the, of the Christian uh, world, uh, ultimately, is uh, we do not subscribe to the language of two hypostases, which is common in the Assyrian Church of the East. And we are not uh, either inclined to embrace the language of one hypostasis and two natures as our own. Of course, historically, some of our church fathers in, in Syriac, uh, in the Syriac church and the Armenian church were welcoming, um, not welcoming of that language as their own, 
but we're willing to accept the fact that there are people out there that speak with the language of one hypostasis and two natures. While it doesn't work for us, it works for them. And if the same meaning is intended, that is Christ is ultimately one person uh, in whom the fullness of the two elements of divinity and humanity uh, are present, then we can um, find ways to agree, even if we disagree on the terminology. Uh, but ultimately, I think the, the claim of Oriental Orthodoxy to fame, if you will, um, is its ability to maintain unity in extreme diversity of practice, in extreme diversity of ritual. Um, if you're an Eastern Orthodox Christian, you let's say you're part of the Greek Orthodox jurisdiction, and you go to the Slavonic uh, side of the church where you go to the uh, Russian Orthodox or Ukrainian Orthodox, um, you can still recognize the liturgy even if you don't understand a word that's being said because it's in a different language from yours. Uh, in Oriental Orthodoxy, it's a completely new experience. It's an experience that reflects uh, the culture and heritage of the church you're in. And that's a beautiful thing because uh, ultimately that was true of many churches, even the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's just that at some point there was a need to kind of standardize everything. And that's when most of the Eastern Orthodox churches put behind all their other liturgies and stuck to uh, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great, and some of them uh, continue to observe the church, uh, sorry, the liturgy of uh, St. James. And then very few local churches like the Church of Alexandria and the Church of Russia continue to embrace the liturgy of St. Cyril of Alexandria um, because of local veneration. Um, so that's pretty much the, um, the claim of Oriental Orthodoxy to fame, uh, extreme unity within extreme diversity. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Andrew. And then um, I suppose in writing this book, what do you hope that readers will gain, gain from it? And maybe also what has been missing in other books on the topic, not that there's an abundance, unfortunately, of books with Oriental Orthodoxy, so-called. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, my goal with this book is anybody who has the slightest uh, idea of what Christianity is about can pick it up, read through it, without feeling the need um, to get a master's degree or a PhD in theology and still be able to understand what the faith of the Oriental Orthodox Church is about. Now, this is not to say that Oriental Orthodoxy is, uh, did not produce books before this. Of course there were books, but because of the extreme diversity of our churches, each church when it produces a book, it produces a book that reflects her own history. And that's phenomenal. So the, the Coptic church has some churches that reflect only her history, some with the Syriac church, some with the uh, Armenian church, and the list goes on and on. Um, for my book, I think where it stands to be a bit different is the need for something that looks at everything, looks at all aspects of dogma, and then gives a brief introduction of each book, um, collects this so that if someone asks me, uh, I want a book that tells me about what Oriental Orthodoxy is about. I can give them one book rather than a book for each church. Um, that, that struggle came, came to the forefront when I and a group of students at McMaster University in Waterloo uh, used to stand with, um, with tables trying to tell others about our church and about our faith. Um, and when someone was intrigued or interested, uh, they asked us, what book can we read? And we always struggled because you either give them something that's as brief and introductory material like uh, uh, Metropolitan Callisto Swear's Introduction to the Orthodox Church, which is ultimately uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, not the Oriental Orthodox Church, or um, you simply give them a book that pertains to one of the six churches. 
And I felt like this gap need, needed to be bridged in English. And that's what um, kind of inspired me to write this book and eventually use it. Uh, it's, it's even used as the reader for one of the courses I teach at Trinity College called or Oriental Orthodoxy Unveiled. It's also the same name as the book uh, for which the book is used as the reader. Um, and I think that's ultimately what needs to be accomplished, that people know what Oriental Orthodoxy is about, know that there are alternative expressions of Christianity, and know that you can have a diversity of rights without exactly being Eastern Catholic or, or being part of the Catholic Church. And at the same time that you can have a heritage that focuses on church fathers without being particularly Eastern Orthodox, because ultimately the Eastern Orthodox Church is largely, not entirely, but largely an Afri a, a European church. Uh, I think um, with the exception of the Church of Alexandria and the missionary work that happens by the Greek Archdiocese of Alexandria, there is very little to, to no presence of uh, Eastern Orthodoxy in Africa, just to be contrasted with the Oriental Orthodox having the Coptic Church, the Ethiopian Church, and the Eritrean Church. Um, also, Asia, it's largely with the exception of Russia, of course, uh, but largely uh, the southern part of Asia is predominantly uh, Oriental Orthodox and not like very few parishes here and there that are considered uh, part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So basically, it's not intended to say you can be part of any of these lovely churches like the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it's simply saying that there is an alternative that might cater more to a larger diversity of populations that want to embrace Christianity in a traditional way. Mm, excellent. Thanks, Andrew. And then um, something that I think is most important in your work is this emphasis that you sort of hinted at of theology being a matter for all Christians, not this kind of dry subject matter that many people think of, unfortunately, whenever they think of theology. And uh, I want to ask you a little bit about that and what's the importance of some of those, you use the theological terms and put it in an earthy way, like kerygma, economia, and the theologia uh, all together. <laughs> so ultimately, it, the, the purpose of Christianity is to live eternally with Christ. And I believe that eternity begins here and now. Um, Jesus speaks uh, to the Father in the presence of his disciples in the Gospel of John and says, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent, probably while pointing at himself while saying that. Um, and ultimately, I believe that this is what theology is all about. It's knowledge of God. I don't think you need to be uh, a renowned scholar of theology who has, you know, you know, Hebrew, Greek, and Syriac like the back of your hand in order for you to qualify as a theologian. Uh, ultimately, I think everyone in the church who comes in communion with God through the sacramental life of the church is called upon to be a theologian in the sense of trying to come close to God and know who he is and, and ultimately discover God within himself. Um, Father Matthew the Poor says this, he says, by prayer, uh, we don't bring God to us, rather we discover him from within us. Um, so I think theology is really about looking deep within through the sacramental life of the church and managing to remove the excesses of all the things we have put, all the idols we have put, all the misconceptions we have about God, all the sins we've struggled with in, in our relationship with him, so that we can find that image and likeness that is really deep embedded within us and manage to get close to God uh, through that. In terms of the three terms I used, kerygma, economia, and theologia, they're not intended to 
divide aspects of theology. They're simply distinguishing elements that can help the person on their growth journey of knowing who God is and what the Orthodox Church is about uh, by telling them how they can ascend in that path. So charisma refers to the simple language of the apostles, the simple teachings of Jesus, some of the moral teachings, um, ways of speaking about what Jesus did without having to resort to uh, elaborate words like uh, humusius and uh, Christ from or into natures or all of that stuff that everybody looks at us and are like, what? So we got to realize people in the marketplace in the fourth century were talking about humusius and from and into and so on. People today, if you say this, nobody understands what you're talking about. Imagine saying the word hypostasis casually in a conversation. And I mean, do that as an experiment and look at the kind of looks you will get back from the people and you realize how how unrealistic that is. So that's, I think, where charisma shines, uh, that it is a good starting point. Economia is more of the narrative and the impact of the narrative of the life of Jesus in this world on the lives of Christians. How important is it for me that when I look at the word becoming flesh, this is not just flesh, this is particular flesh, but it's flesh that is very much the same as mine and equal to it in every way. The fact that when Jesus Christ is on the cross, I do not look at him from a distance, but rather I can say with the tongue of St. Paul, with Christ I've been crucified. Um, and, and the list goes on and on, that everything that Jesus did, he did for me, uh, in particular, in a very real sense, and that's where economia shines. The final theologia is the ultimate goal of Christian life, which is to be able to sit in the presence of God, aware of him being there, knowing him, communing with him, praying to him, accepting him, while not worrying about language, while not worrying about elaborate words, and just truly knowing him as he is, rather than learning about him, you know him. Mm. And that's where theologia comes as the pinnacle of the Christian life. I mean, that division, I can't, or that, I shouldn't say division, that categorization, I can't claim that it's my own intelligence. It's, it's really something that lots of the church fathers speak about and, and use to, to help catechumens sometimes, sometimes to help, you know, novices that are becoming monastics and, and so on. Mm, excellent. Thank you so much, Andrew. And um, I was going to ask you a little bit more about Christology, but I think you did a wonderful job of describing the distinct emphasis within uh, the Oriental Orthodox Church. So I want to move on and uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about the saints of the church then. Who are some of the great saints and theologians of the Oriental Orthodox and I suppose uh, some of your, the ones that you, that speak most to you and what maybe do you find most captivating about some of these figures then? Sure. Um, so of course the, the first five centuries are, are common to all of us, but the the main highlights would be people like St. Gregory the Illuminator, uh, people like St. Justin the Martyr, um, St. Athanasius of Alexandria, St. Cyril of Alexandria. Uh, these are all people we uphold. But to go more to the Oriental Orthodox side that is not as well known, I would say that on the top of my personal list is, of course, Severus of Antioch because he is someone that I'm doing my PhD on. So, of course, I like him. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not biased at all. <laughs> Uh, but what I like about him is he, he's someone who covers theology, dogmatics, also covers pastoral care, 
in the sense of like, what do we do in this situation? They, took the, they sent him a letter like a bishop and he responds with another letter. Uh, and these letters give you a lot of understanding of what the world may have looked like at that time. There are other people as well, like St. Gregory the Armenian, uh, sorry, uh, St. Gregory of Narek uh, from the 10th century, who is, um, he's a mystical figure. He is someone who's a renowned theologian. He is phenomenal. His writings, his poems, his hymns that he added to the Armenian church are out of this world, really. Like, this is uh, a phenomenal uh, figure of Oriental Orthodoxy, in my opinion. Um, he is so wonderful in his writings to the extent that the Catholic Church added him to be one of the doctors of the Catholic Church, despite the fact that he was an Oriental Orthodox man, an Oriental Orthodox saint. And that's it's crazy. Like that has never happened in church history, yet it happened as of late because of recognizing how phenomenal his writings are and how universal his writings are. So I think these are at the top of my list in addition to St. Jacob of Sarouk from the Syriac Orthodox Church, who's kind of the, the renewed version of Santa from the Syrian after Chalcedon, uh, a poet that speaks to the heart of the people, speaks to the narrative of the life of Jesus, uh, and uh, so on. Mm, brilliant thanks Andrew and then um, I, mean, I want to continue with this kind of theme of unity and diversity in a slightly different mode here if we may and ask you a little bit about how does the unity and diversity that marks the trinity then practically impact how we order our lives in communion if I may put it that way okay um, first of all if a dogma of the church does not have a practical implication on your life, it's a philosophy, it's not a theology. And knowing that all the dogmas of the church are theologies, not philosophies, it has to have a practical implication on our lives. Um, it's, it's kind of amazing how that when the church fathers speak about the Trinity, there's even diversity in the way by which they explain the doctrine of the Trinity. So you'll find someone like Saint Athanasius uh, using the, the symbol of the sun that has a shape in the sky and then there's the impact of heat and then there's the impact of light uh, which are three aspects of the same sun and then you're going to find saint patrick's famous plan that he uses in, in ireland uh, to, to explain the trinity of course that's not exactly Oriental orthodox but you get the idea that i have here um, you go to uh, some of the Cappadocian fathers and Sincere Alexandria, and then they start using the symbol of Adam, Eve, and Seth being three individuals, uh, three human beings, um, where Adam is the source of both, but ultimately the way Eve comes out of Adam versus the way Seth comes out of Adam is different. And of course, Adam, Eve, and Seth are separated of each other by virtue of time and space because they are human, but God exists outside of the quantum of time and space, and therefore the division of time and space does not apply to him. And as such, we can say that the Son and the Spirit come out of the Father differently uh, without that meaning that he pre precedes or pre-exists any of them because the idea of pre and post predicates time, which doesn't apply to God to begin with. So that idea about diversity isn't just about the diversity of the persons of the Trinity, it was also about the diversity of the ways by which we explain the reality and the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, in terms of the persons of the Trinity themselves, um, one of the, the beautiful things that San Athanasius says is that everything we say about the Father can be said about the Son, and everything we say about the Son can be said about the Father, except for the Father being a Father and the Son being a Son. 
And I think that's phenomenal because it makes you realize that no matter how similar two churches or two individuals may be, there will be a distinguishing factor about them that will make them unique. And that in and of itself does not compromise the unity. I think understanding unity properly in the light of the doctrine of the Trinity compels us to distinguish between the notion of unity and the notion of uniformity. So for you and I to be united, um, I don't need to be where you are. You don't need to be where I am. We simply need Zoom. <laughs> and that's the principle of our unity. Um, and then our unity with everybody else that's going to watch us later will happen through YouTube and so on. And, you know, it sounds silly. And I know it is. It's a very silly example. But it makes you realize that for you and I to be united, I don't need to look like you and you don't need to look like me. And we don't need to be the same individual. And I think when we understand the Trinity in that light, where the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are three distinct persons in one essence, in one substance, that we can say that the six Oriental Orthodox churches are all unique churches with unique rights that are united in the one faith that is sustaining them and that they speak and that they preach to their, uh, their people and that they share with the rest of the world. I mean, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think that diversity has something to it that's very appealing that can be um, used. I mean, that's something I emphasized in my book because when someone comes from, from outside and looks at the apostolic churches, if they go to the Eastern Orthodox Church, there will be very few rites that they can really switch between. Uh, there's only recently there has been the Western rite of, of Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. If they go to the Catholic Church, they will probably see the somewhat modern or late medieval idea of Eastern Catholicism, which even those Eastern Catholic churches have been largely Latinized. But in Oriental Orthodoxy, they will see how that was never a problem since the beginning for us. And there was never a need to create uniformity and call it unity. And I think that in and of itself is an appealing factor of Oriental Orthodoxy that I emphasized and continue to emphasize. Um, there's no need to, to kind of colonize rights for lack of a better term. I know that it's a loaded term politically, but I, I, I'm merely using it for lack of a better term in the, right of, in, in the light of rituals of the church. Um, and ultimately, if we continue realizing our unity, uh, we'll get somewhere better. Because I, as an Oriental Orthodox today, who is part of the Coptic Church, having done the research to write the book Oriental Orthodoxy Unveiled and having studied as much as I have, and having been interested in Severus of Antioch, who is a Syriac Orthodox church father while I'm an Oriental Orthodox Copt, um, has led me to realize that when I am stuck, I don't need to look outside of my tradition. I just need to look at the other local traditions. When I'm stuck, I look to St. Gregory the Armenian and I always find something that I can use. Uh, I look at uh, St. Jacob Barhabrius or St. Uh, uh, Jacob Sarug or any of the other Syriac Orthodox Church Fathers, or I go to the late Coptic uh, medieval saints like St. Bulusilbushi. All of these saints are saints that we don't usually talk about. And when we do, we talk about the local Church Fathers to our own local right. And I think it's time that we transcend that and start learning from one another. And, and practice humility by literally sitting at each other's feet and learning from the church fathers of everybody else's. Like, I don't think anything will be a more exemplary um, 
way of living out our orthodoxy as Oriental Orthodox Christians, then someone like me who is Coptic sitting at the feet of a Syriac Orthodox priest to learn about Jacob of Saruk. And then a Syriac Orthodox member coming to a Coptic Orthodox priest sitting at their feet to learn from them about someone like Buddha Slabushi and how he speaks about the feasts of the church and how the feasts of the church have a real impact on our lives in terms of that which we commemorate in each feast. And the list goes on and on. Excellent. Thank you, Andrew. And um, something you mentioned earlier, which I think is most important, is this understanding that sacraments are not just something set aside, one part of life, but um, the sacramental life is more holistic, for lack of a better word, kind of like Father Schmimmen, the way he describes it. So you've got the liturgy, which he can focus on, but then you go out and that's for the life of the world. That's very in all of these different areas. I, I want to ask a little bit more about that and the importance of that as Orthodox persons, and then maybe some specifics that we help people understand it. Like what do things like water and fire each symbolize and how does that understanding of symbolism and liturgy differ from the kind of crude notions of, it's, oh, it's just a symbol and so on, if that makes sense. I mean, I want to start by saying that the word symbol in and of itself doesn't mean just symbol in the way we do. Uh, this, the word symbol comes from Greek, which means symbol alone. And sim means together and velo means to put or to throw. So when we say that something is symbolic, uh, unfortunately, we're influenced by the 19th century mentality where symbol means something that points to something greater. But the ancients could say that the body of Christ is symbolic in as much as the bread and the body come together in unity. I mean, the body of Christ does not cease to be bread, but it's no longer just bread. It's the body of Christ. So bread and body come together and that can be spoken of as symbol, but that's um, a different story. And I want to focus on something else really quickly, which is the importance of uh, learning about church rites and church sacraments from, from different church fathers. So I'm going to mention a few people that some might be interested in consulting with that are from the Oriental Orthodox tradition. So to use the Syriac Orthodox Church, one can turn to someone like, um, or the Syriac rite, I should say. Uh, one could turn to Metropolitan Isaac Saka, who was the Metropolitan of Christian Education in the Syriac Orthodox Church. One can learn to Father Baby Varghese, uh, who is a renowned scholar, contemporary uh, of Syriac uh, Orthodox rites. Uh, one could turn to uh, Father Arsenius, or uh, uh, I want to say Father Arsenius Raskala. He just got ordained recently and his name changed. So that's why I, I had to stop for a second to think about his new name rather than use his lay name. Uh, and Father Athanasius Omakari from the Coptic Orthodox Church. There's also Saint uh, Gregory Narek who speaks about the feasts of the church and writes some of the hymns that the Armenian church continues to use to this day. And there are some commentaries given by um, the late uh, Catholicos Karakin the first uh, who writes about worship in the Armenian church, how scripture functions, how liturgy functions and how the worship is more holistic. So these are the people that one could turn to in order to cultivate a better understanding of the rights of the different Oriental Orthodox churches and the sacramental life of these churches. But to get to the idea of what a sacrament is, I think the moment you decide to define a sacrament is the moment you, try, you decide to limit it. Um, the best way to work with the sacrament is really to be apophatic about it and not use words. It's, it's part of that theologia rather than kerygma or economia that I spoke about earlier. In a way, it is... It is to live 
that presence of God in your life, to appropriate unto yourself the life of God through his grace, not because you're special or you're great. Uh, it's because of God who bestows his grace on you and invites you to live in communion with him and be truly uh, a member of the church, a member of the body of Christ. Um, the sacramental life of the church is, it's very important that we transcend these definitions because what about death? I mean, death is the only constant part of life. Nobody that has ever lived didn't die or will not die. So if we count Elijah and Enoch, as the tradition says they have been ascended, well, they will come back and die. You can count on them dying. Uh, so everybody who lives will die. And funerals are not considered part of the seven sacraments of the church. But isn't that a rite of passage that happens through the church? where up until the very moment in which the casket is put down into the ground, we say, Adam, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Is that not a sacrament? Is that not an invitation that the Spirit may enlighten our minds who are living, and at the same time, a reminder for us that the Spirit does not leave the body of that person whose body has been a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit since the day that person was chrismated, and whose body has become a dwelling place for the body and blood of the Lord every time that person has uh, received the sacrament of the Eucharist. So everything from birth to death that involves our life in communion with the Trinity through the life of the church is a sacrament. It is our means of knowing God who is beyond knowing and beyond unknowing. It's our being in him. And it's it, the, the beauty of sacraments in the Orthodox Church is that they are not mere uh, mechanical rites. It's much more than that. It's, it's a way of making you holy, but it's also a matter of making material things holy. It's a sacrament is really an extension of the incarnation, the reality that divinity and humanity come together in the unity of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I who am a material person, I take material things and I put them in communion with God through that mystery of the incarnation. And these things become symbols of holiness by which God communicates his divinity to me. So I'm no longer an other to God, but I am rather a member of his body, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And not I alone, but every person with whom I'm in communion in the church. So, Ultimately, I ended up using words because I can't just stay here and pray in front of you in order to speak about sacraments. <laughs> but really, if someone truly wants to know the power of the sacramental life of the church, um, do that practice where you actually, you know, say the Jesus prayer and truly prepare for the Eucharist. Um, sit in your room and realize that your room is another place where you can come to realize the life of the church and realize that by virtue of your presence as a, as a member of the church, that prayer corner, that icon corner is part of the church and is a place where you're being transformed by the life of the spirit and the life of God himself. And practice silence before and after liturgy. And as you participate in the sacraments while reciting the Jesus prayer, and I assure you that you will have a better understanding of sacrament ever greater than any of the people I've recommended you read the writings. They might help, but nothing will match the personal and intimate experience of God through the sacraments of the church. Mm, amen. <laughs> so um, if I might take it to another figure that you mentioned in the book, 
that I also find most impressive and helpful in hinting at these things that can only be really experienced and help us a long way is a, you reference Metropolitan Paulus Gregorius of the Malankara Orthodox Church. So I want to ask a little bit about what he had to say about the Eucharist, for example, and um, what should, or kind of calling to the Eucharist and calling in, in our, to our, the Christian life properly understood as you describe, what does that sort of signify then? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a bit of a twist on that and try to bring it back to um, the mystery of the incarnation as the source of all sacraments, um, because Paulus Mar Gregorio speaks about something that I think is incredibly significant uh, for him. We gotta realize that Paulus Mar Gregorius is a very unique figure. He's someone whose philosophy is somewhat. Platonic, somewhat Indian as well. So he's multifaceted in his in his perception of life. And he's someone who served for a while in the in the in in his own uh, part of the world, which is India, but also went and migrated to Ethiopia and, and served there for a while. So he's someone who's has a broad idea, broad philosophy, broad understanding, diverse use of languages. So he he he's a genius of the, the modern Oriental Orthodox Church. And why I I say all of that is because in his reader, which is uh, simply a a book that has a collection of his writings, um, he talks about the notion of uh, plurima, which is the fullness. And he takes us on a journey where we understand uh, the incarnation in the light of the past, which is where God creates heaven and earth. And heaven and earth correspond to divinity and humanity almost in a way, uh, the, the kind of take us to realize the importance of materiality and immateriality, because heaven is ultimately not just a sky, it's also an orthodox, the orthodox concept, it's the, the realm of God, ultimately. So heaven and earth come together, but then as a result of the, far, of, of the fall, they come apart. And ultimately, heaven and earth are just, in the modern day, they are just symbols or, or small manifestations of the greatness of materiality and immateriality, the materiality of the universe as a whole and the immateriality of God. And what, what Paulus Gregorius speaks about is how when the word becomes flesh, the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity come together in the one person of Jesus Christ and makes that reality complete and concrete in his person. And then Another important thing to realize is the cosmic aspect of the incarnation. Jesus ate, drank, breathed air. All of that interacted with the, with the plurima and the fullness of his humanity. He had, he had cells that have been nourished and, and nurtured. And then he rises from the dead. And then he ascends into heavens, having interacted with all of the elements of our created existence. So when we say that Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, we're not merely talking about a human body in a vacuum. It's a human body that corresponds and has in him all of these elements that Jesus Christ interacted with. And that's why we believe in a cosmic salvation rather than uh, where matter is going to be saved and is going to be glorified rather than thinking of some kind of platonic heaven where all things material will cease to be, which is a problem that a lot of Christians believe today because of popular culture rather than because of the tradition of the church. Lots of people are, are surprised when they hear, wait, there is, 
a physical resurrection of the dead? I'm like, yes, <laughs> uh, in a glorified body. And, and I mean, the book of Revelation says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And I think that ultimately our journey from the fullness of divinity and humanity we see in Christ to the new heaven and a new earth, which we will see in the eschaton or the end of times, that era that we live in in the middle is kind of bridged by the sacraments, particularly the sacrament of the Eucharist. And in the sacrament of the Eucharist, uh, the, the beauty of it is nobody is far enough. Everybody's close because the sacrament of the Eucharist bridges the, the limitations of time and space. We, we partake of the Eucharist. When was the Eucharist established? Covenant Thursday. What did Jesus say when he broke the bread and, and poured the, the, the wine in the cup? He said, this is my body, this is my blood, broken for you. Well, but wait a second, his body wasn't broken till Friday after when he dies. But that wasn't a problem because sacraments, especially the sacrament of the Eucharist, do not succumb to the limits of time and space. And therefore, when I partake of the Eucharist as an Orthodox Christian, I'm not partaking of a different Eucharist that was especially made by the hand of the parish priest who's praying the liturgy that day. I am partaking of the Eucharist that Christ established on Covenant Thursday, which transcends time and space. And that's why in the liturgy, we have a very important concept known as the anamnesis, which is the, the concept of remembrance. We remember the life of Jesus. And we say, we commemorate your, whole, your, your birth, your death, your resurrection, your ascension into heavens, which so far makes sense. And then we say, and your second coming, which shall be from the heavens. How can you remember the future? which you haven't lived yet. Well, no, I am living it right now by virtue of the Eucharist, where the fullness of divinity and humanity that are present in our Lord Jesus Christ are fully present in the altar and made concrete for me to partake of. So I hope that answers uh, your question. But... Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. And um, the next question I have, so Dr. Peter Butenef, um, has a book sort of along the lines of how to be a sinner, which I think is interesting. And on my list, but I haven't come to it yet. <laughs> no problem. But it's, it's just to give people an idea. So there's this lack of understanding of the traditional terms, I suppose, and I thought we described before of a, even sin. We think after Rousseau and people like that that were born free and everywhere in chains that were intrinsically good, whereas the, the orthodox conception is something different. And um, I want to ask you in line with that, some other terms, repentance, confession, healing, that we might not um, get the full grasp of, not that we get the full grasp of, in line with what you said, it's, it's an apophatic quality, but I can't even hint that with our kind of limited language now. It's just a, so how do we approach repentance, confession, and healing within the Orthodox context? And why is this maybe doubly important based on what I've just described? Yeah. That makes sense. No, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the world of our, our day and age has evolved uh, and the words do have meanings and these meanings are different even across churches and across uh, different denominational lines. and and. I, I sympathize with the with the popular culture not being so sure what we mean when we say words like repentance and words like sin and so on. I think 
that's where analogies become very powerful. But before I get to analogies, I want to say this. Repentance and confession is ultimately a return to the day in which you participated in the sacrament of baptism. The way the sacrament of baptism and the beauty of the sacrament of baptism, it's universal across uh, all denominational lines of uh, apostolic Christianity. So Catholics, Orthodox, Eastern, Orthodox, Oriental, uh, I believe probably even the Assyrian Church of the East, all of us uh, practice it with certain characteristics that are common to all of the churches, which involve a renunciation of Satan while facing the West and then facing the East while reciting the canon or the, the creed of the faith or the symbol of the faith. When we face Satan in the West, Satan is known in Greek as diavolos. Diavolos literally means uh, one who divides. Dia means two or two, two, two things. Uh, and volos means to throw. So it's almost this which throws things apart. And then we renounce Satan and or, or the devil who divides. And then we turn around to the East and we start saying the symbol of faith. What is symbol? Well, I said already, symbol is this which gathers together or puts together. And we are put together almost, uh, and we're made whole and made one by virtue of reciting the creed and then participating in baptism. What happens when we sin is that we simply drift and go back and look toward the West without renouncing Satan. And at the moment of repentance, it's almost as if we renounce Satan again and go back toward our baptismal state. Repentance is thought of as, best thought of, in my opinion at least, as a return to drink from the waters of forgiveness. Many of us think of forgiveness as this which happens as a result of our repentance. So I sin, I ask God for forgiveness in the process of repenting. I participate in the sacrament of the church that is confession. It's a lot of I, I, I. And then God, as a result of that, decides to bestow, you know, forgiveness as if he's like adding, you know, a bit of water to a pot or something. That's not how it is. Forgiveness is already present and available since our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified and rose from the dead. What happens when I repent is that instead of dying of thirst, I go back to the river of his forgiveness and I drink from it. And when I do, I come back to him and I am revived again by him. So repentance isn't that activity of um, trying to win favor with God. It's rather a return, like the prodigal son, to the loving embrace of the Father through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by drinking from the water of forgiveness that he offered from a long time ago. And I think that perception is a lot more positive and a lot more open than the perception that tends to be kind of imported into Western culture where repentance is this annoying thing you have to go through because you committed a mortal sin and now you need to you know undo the deed and and, and so on i'm not saying this is wrong i'm just saying that it's a different perception that needs to be um appreciated as well and i think in general I, I must admit the catholic church has come a long way in terms of appreciating the eastern side of christianity i was recently reading the catechism of the catholic church and I was uh, pleasantly surprised and impressed to see the amount of drawing on Eastern Christian sources and, and, and Eastern Christian concepts that are part of the tradition of the, the church as a whole. And it's, it's important to 
not lose sight of that, that excessive legalism can be problematic. And I think also the excessive spiritualization of everything and mystic, like making everything mystical can also be problematic. That's why the church, the Orthodox church still has canons and still there are certain sins that if you commit them, you will be deprived of the mysteries for a while um, and, the, and the sacraments of the church. So I'm not saying that it doesn't, that there isn't room for that either, but I think it's very helpful to begin our thoughts about repentance not in terms of, oh, I will be grilled or barbecued in hell <laughs> if I do this, but or I don't do that, but rather in terms of, I want to come back to be in communion with God. I think it's a lot more positive. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thanks, Andrew. And uh, what you described earlier about dating and getting to know someone at a deeper level and how we do that with Christ, I think is beautiful. But even beyond that, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the theology of marriage within the Orient Orthodox tradition. It's kind of symbolism, uh, not to um, use it in the modern sense, and true meaning. Then uh, I think once, once I became a Christian, uh, I was drawn very early to the Orthodox understanding of marriage. And I think other people should, should know about it. So if you would maybe tell us a little bit about that and why it's important. Yeah, so, so let me start by what might be my understanding of the Western notion of marriage in, in the sacraments of the church and in the life of the Western church, Catholic or Protestant. It's ultimately the two people that come together and the, the minister or the priest is the witness to that union that has just happened. And he proclaims it at the end as you are now husband and wife or man and wife. Um, the Orthodox church sees everything in more mystical terms. Um, and I'm not saying that it always did, but I'm saying that it evolved that way and it has become that way. And there are roots for that perception uh, in the life of the church since the times of St. Paul. So to go back a little bit, St. Paul gave us the paradigm that we should think in terms of, which is Christ and the church, man and wife coming together. So ultimately every marriage is not just consenting adults getting the permission of the church to live together. Rather, if people are living their marriage properly, it's an invitation for them to realize that their calling is to live that life that resembles the relationship between Christ and the church on the cross in as much as that's humanly possible. Someone might ask, well, where's the church on the cross? The fathers understand that the moment in which Christ's side was pierced and blood and water came out of it to be a symbol of the church coming out of the side of Christ in the symbol of water and blood, which resemble the most two important sacraments of the church that are known even in Western Christianity as the dominical sacraments, the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Eucharist. So the church is largely formed of these two sacraments and every sacrament every part of the life of the church really has its truth either in baptism or Eucharist. So chrismation is a continuation of baptism um, and a preparation for the Eucharist, it's almost a, a midpoint. What is repentance? It's a return to baptism. And it's also the way for you to come back and partake of the Eucharist and so on. But that image of Christ and the church and the church coming outside of Christ's side, just like Eve came out of Adam's side is supposed to inform and inspire married couples to live that life where their relationship is symbolic or is an extension of 
the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. As such, to do that, marriage becomes a matter of witness. And what does the word witness mean in Greek? It means martyria, which eventually comes to refer to martyrdom by the shedding of blood. Indeed, the highest way of witnessing to your faith is by shedding your blood, which is quite an easy thing if you're Coptic, because we always have our blood shed in the streets of Egypt and elsewhere uh, since the persecution. But if you want uh, a simpler way of living that out and a more uh, prolonged way of living martyria, of witnessing, well, marriage can be that. And the way the church lives that out in the right of the church is by crowning the bride and the groom. And that crowning, you know, we have different styles of doing the, the ceremony uh, and exchange of rings. It, does the priest put the, the ring like midway and then the person puts it all the way? Or do the couple just exchange rings in the presence of the priest? But one thing is constant across the, the board, which is the crowning being done by the hands of the priest. That is a reminder that now your marriage is not about you. It's about you witnessing to the rest of the world that your marriage, like the Eucharist, may be for the life of the world. And that's very powerful. It's a lot more sublime than simply, you know, I will get married and now I'll close my door and, you know, we'll live happily ever after and nobody needs to, to know where we are, what we're doing. And, and you know, we become extra, extremely exclusive. No, actually, a, an Orthodox marriage is about taking the normal marriage that everybody else partakes of outside and you transform it and you make it into a sacrament of the kingdom that your marriage may be a witness, may be a martyrdom that everybody witnesses and that that marriage may actually bring people closer to God, even if they don't particularly become Orthodox. Um, I think it's a win when we get people to think in Orthodox paradigms, even if they don't become Orthodox. I mean, it would be great if they become Orthodox, uh, but the mere idea of getting someone to think with an orthodox phronema or an orthodox mindset, it's a win. And if that happens through someone's marriage, why not? I, I think that's a great thing. Amen. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Thank you, Andrew. No, that's fantastic. And um, another thing in line with that that I wanted to ask you about, people will often know, well, not necessarily, but maybe more so now than they did, the place of deification within Eastern Orthodoxy, they'll hear words like theosis and now, and think, oh, that's, it. that's interesting, something new. <laughs> Obviously, it's not new. <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to ask you about what is the place of deification in the Oriental Orthodox way, maybe distinctly uh, coming down to us from the early church until today. Then. Well, considering that Athanasius and Cyril were among the first people to use it. You can assume that it's in there, uh, that the, the concept is there. Um, one thing that needs to be noted is that the languages of Oriental Orthodoxy are a struggle because we have many languages and some of these languages have certain connotations. You might not find the language being used explicitly, but it's very much embedded in the life of the church. So Arabic language, for example, if you use the word deification, it can be quite problematic. It, it can sound like becoming God in a, in a sense that is almost like you becoming God by essence, almost. That is not to say that Arabic does not make use of it and, and Muslim mystics, in fact, actually use the language of deification um, in a different way from Orthodox Christianity, but it is there. But you would find some some theologians, whether, be they, whether they be Arabic 
writers uh, from the Coptic and Syriac Orthodox churches who wrote in Arabic or some like St. Gregory in Arabic or the Ethiopian church uh, liturgical uh, texts and so on. Deification is mentioned with different words, different analogies, the idea that God's life becomes appropriated unto you by virtue of the sacramental life of the church is one concept, which I've already spoken about plenty. The other is the sacramental, sorry, the, the incarnational aspect of deification. The idea that God becomes man, that man might be made God. Now the, the intimacy that exists between divinity and humanity in Christ is more like that, which is between my soul and body as a human being. That kind of intimacy is what we're talking about when it comes to the union of divinity and humanity. But my humanity being deified by virtue of my interaction with God and with Christ is better thought of in terms of marriage. There are clearly two distinct persons, individuals, but they come to be in communion with each other and they come to commune with one another. You know, well, we often make that joke, couples that live together start looking like each other. <laughs> uh, that's pretty much uh, what, what I would say happens with deification is the, the, more, the more you spend time with God, the more God becomes visible in you as a human being. I think that's uh, an absolutely phenomenal um, concept in and of itself. So that there is the incarnational aspect of deification. There is the sacramental element of deification. Which I spoke about. And then there is another one, which is the pneumatological aspect of deification that's unfortunately not mentioned as much, but the Holy Spirit is almost the person of the Trinity for whom I feel bad because of how little we speak about him. Um, but, you know, the, the, the famous prayer that's as ancient as it gets, so heavenly king, the comfort of the spirit of truth. Well, that speaks to the Holy Spirit. It's found in, in the Coptic Rite, and it's found also, I know, in the Byzantine Rite, probably more frequently used in the Byzantine Rite than it is in the Coptic Rite. But prayers like this to the Holy Spirit are a good reminder of what St. Paul himself says about us, that the Spirit groans within us with groanings that cannot be uttered as we pray. I'm not praying alone. I am praying with the Holy Spirit, who's a person of the Trinity. And that even transforms our understanding of prayer as a mode of deification. Prayer is not about me, who is like that tiny little human praying to that God Almighty and asking him to make me pass tomorrow's test. Rather, prayer becomes a dialogue that has always existed between the persons of the Trinity to which I am invited. And as I engage in that dialogue, I'm not even dialoguing by my own words. I'm even dialoguing by the words of God through the scripture because we can pray with the words of scripture and the spirit himself prays within me. And I think that's that transforms our understanding of prayer and transforms our understanding of deification as well, that it is being in communion with God. And I think that's absolutely um, at the core of, of our understanding of deification, that deification is ultimately the outcome of all that we do to become like God in as much as that is humanly possible. In fact, to become like God in as much as that's humanly possible is the definition of Christianity given by San Basil the Great as early as the fourth century. Um, and I think it's phenomenal because it sums it up and it doesn't tell you much about how it's done. It just tells you to trust the process and live through it. And truly deification is another one of those things where you can't put it in words because no words will suffice to explain the, the depth of being, I mean, it really means not just communion with God, it means being one with God. That's the level of intimacy that Orthodox Christianity provides me with. And the beauty of it is while deification is mentioned in other traditions, sometimes it's spoken of as something that's preserved for the elite saintly. 
in Orthodoxy, everybody who comes and partakes of the Eucharist is invited to be a deified human being. And that's revolutionary as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't need to be like to, to use the Catholic paradigm. I don't need to be, I don't need to be Thomas Aquinas who speaks of the beatific vision in order for me to be truly living deification. Me going to church and communing of the sacraments is deification. And it will become more magnified and more outlived as I become, um, as I as I pass away and I, I start living uh, for eternity with Christ. And then of course the monastics who live deification and have uh, external manifestations, be it by the gifts of the spirit or found throughout Oriental Orthodoxy. Uh, a classic example of that is uh, St. Pope Kirillus VI, uh, who is the 116th Patriarch of Alexandria. The current Patriarch is the 118th. So there was one before that. This is Holiness Pope Shenouda of Blessed Memory, the 117th. And then St. Pope Carolus is the 116th. Everybody speaks of him as a wonder worker. I love to speak of him as a man of prayer because that's the identifying factor of who he is. Uh, it was said of him, there's a biography written about him by Father Daniel Fanus. And I, I strongly recommend it for everyone because... Um, I think reading the lives of the saints is, is one of the greatest ways of understanding how deification works in the life of someone else who's holier than me, that I may imitate what I can and leave what I can't imitate. Um, so Pope Carolus was a hermit for a while before he was a pope, and he was a monk for a while, and um, he used to write his diaries, which were used in, in writing that biography, but one of the greatest things is he started writing and writing and writing, and then one day he writes... I have seen a light. And that was the last thing he ever wrote in his diary. It's almost as if seeing the light of God was almost a new beginning and an end of his old life that he needed to write about. Now his, li his life is led and, and entirely transformed by the light of God that he is, he doesn't need to write about it. He just needs to live it and experience it. I highly doubt I will see the uncreated light in my icon corner as a lay person living in the world. But I can say that I and everybody else here who hears us, if they are truly committed to the sacramental life of the church, they can and are living the evocation. Excellent. Thank you, Anju. It's most important. And um, I want to ask you a little bit just about your kind of historical context in North America then and the church in North America today, whether that's a, the United States or Canada or whatever it may be. How can the church continue to live out this um, unity and diversity and maybe what are some of the challenges even and why is this important now in a globalized world with the cops are being brought up a culture completely different maybe from their parents to their grandparents and so forth that makes sense yeah well i mean north america provides a few challenges one of them that it's a new culture and you're not sure which culture you want to have more of the culture you came back with from egypt i mean when people might emigrate from one country to the other they bring with them two things in their suitcases their spices that they use for their food and their religion. <laughs> so it's, it's what it is, right? Um, and you bring that in and then you you go through the cultural shock and that is an individual experience, a familial experience and also an ecclesial experience. Um, as a Coptic Orthodox Christian, well, I come to the church 
And I don't know how it will be because it might be a more um, Arabic inclined church where the priest is praying everything in Arabic. It might be more Coptic inclined, it might be more English inclined. Um, so language is, is, is an important factor. Uh, even the way you, you use language and how important it is for you and even certain hymns. I mean, certain hymns were written only in Arabic. Are you gonna translate them or are you just gonna say them in Arabic while you're displaying a translation on a screen? Uh, and, and I'm lucky, I live in Ontario where it's entirely English speaking. Our, our brothers and sisters in Montreal, you should see the PowerPoint slides they use for church. It's, it's Arabic, Coptic, English, and French. Well, what do you do with that? And, and of course, each of those languages come with cultural connotations that they, they need to take care of. So as a Copt, uh, well, of course, parts of the Coptic culture I'd like to, to maintain and, and preserve. Um, but I can't say that we haven't been influenced by some of the Arabic aspects. Um, our understanding of certain cultural practices that are common to everybody else can have a lot to be said about in a church that has grown in a fundamentalist country to a degree uh, that's heavily influenced by the presence of uh, Arabs and, and Islam in general. For example, consumption of alcohol, uh, consumption of pork, uh, participating in dances. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people would say dancing is entirely uh, taboo because when they're thinking of dancing, they're thinking of certain forms of dancing that were used very inappropriately in medieval Egypt. So belly dancing was used as, for example, as a form of fertility dance. It was sometimes used by uh, slave trade cults and so on. So it, it has very terrible connotations, but that's not every dance. I mean, if, if I have a daughter down the line and she's... Uh, uh, she participates in like ballet or, or some kind of dance that is artistically inclined. I don't think that's a problematic issue. For, for some who are more immersed in the, in the Arabized culture, that can be a lot more problematic. So, so all of that, and, and that's just the Coptic piece out of six churches uh, that we're talking about with each of them having its own challenges. Um, the Syriac Orthodox Church comes from a uh, different, but quite similar enough culture, I would say. Then you have the Armenians who are effectively European Christians. Uh, and then you have the Ethiopians and Eritreans who are entirely African and uh, they haven't been influenced by Islam at all, uh, but were in fact uh, originally uh, Ethiopian uh, Jews who converted to Christianity. So parts of, of Judaism might still be there. A lot of Ethiopians are uh, not inclined to consume pork because it's not kosher. Uh, a lot of them might be inclined to uh, pray on the, a little bit more on Saturday because that's their way of living the remnants of having observed Shabbat or the Sabbath as Jewish people. So all of these elements, I don't think they should be done away with. I think they are beautiful. They are distinguishing factors and so on. But I think the churches, all of these churches need to start realizing that there is room for us now to become American Orthodox churches. That doesn't mean Protestant Orthodox. It doesn't mean Catholic Orthodox. It just means Orthodox, but aware of the American culture you're in, which involves speaking English, for example. There is nothing wrong with having an entire Coptic church parish that's under a Coptic jurisdiction or a Syriac Orthodox church that's under a Syriac Orthodox jurisdiction that is strictly using English. I think that's a step in the right direction. It's not a bad step. I wouldn't be happy to see all the churches become that because that would take away from the cultural piece and the multicultural piece of Oriental Orthodoxy. Because if you all become American, then you've lost that piece. Um, 
So I think it's it's walking a fine line between adopting certain things from that new culture that has become yours while retaining some of that stuff from your culture that's good that you've brought in with you. And I think being put face-to-face with the new culture invites you to see and judge what parts of your practice are truly faith-based and what parts are culture-based. And those are the parts that you can maybe, you know, uh, kind of polish a little, clean up a little, see what parts were just important and, and you need to cast them aside, what parts you need to emphasize because they're actually important and they make you live a better Orthodox Christian life. And the list goes on and on. Mm, excellent. Thank you, Andrew. So I'm cognizant of the fact that I've taken a lot of your time and I most appreciate you uh, and the wonderful answers you've given. It's, it's given me a lot to think about and feel and pray about really, honestly. So I most appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. And um, just taking it from there, I want to ask, is there anything else that you're working on at the moment that you'd like to tell viewers or listeners about that, or that you still feel the passion to get involved with in the future that they might be interested in? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, mostly now I'm, I'm occupied with my PhD, uh, which involves uh, writing about Christological terminology, which is a little bit more academically uh, rigorous than it is for the public reader. Uh, although public readers are always invited to, to read it as well uh, when it's published eventually. Um, I'm also a bit more focused now on the pastoral aspect of my studies and, and being a chaplain. And uh, I just got accepted into the Master of Pastoral Studies at uh, Emmanuel College uh, in uh, Toronto School of Theology with the hope of continuing my training and, and becoming a more effective uh, chaplain. Um, other than that, it's uh, there are quite a few projects I'm working on um, with colleagues, some of which involving uh, the doctrine of deification, some are involving uh, the role of women in the church and in Oriental Orthodoxy, because, again, because we have different rights, each right involves uh, women to, to varying degrees uh, within the church, and so on. So. There are quite a few projects that are kind of fermenting in the back of my mind, some that I'm working on uh, personally. I think overall, um, when I do that stuff and I publish something, the easiest way to find it is to uh, go on my website, www.andrewyoussef.ca, and you will probably see if I've published uh, something new, I'll probably post about it, leave a link so you're able to access the the material that you uh, know I have published. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sanju, and God bless you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going there. Nobody can stop me. Ooh, I'm going there.